I think from a conditioning standpoint, one of the clearest or most useful spectrums to think along is like global adaptation to local muscular endurance um, and kind of how that transitions or fits across, you know, this ideal timeline. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about conditioning and weightlifting. So a really nice mix. So we've got Aaron Kunanen from the Cincinnati Reds, who has experience, lots of experience working with mixed martial artists and the UFC, and has also got lots of experience working in baseball and team sports. So what can we learn from the UFC and mixed martial arts to take into a team sport environment? So from a conditioning perspective, what can we use from UFC and take it into team sports? What principles, what methods... Then we have a little chat around Aaron's previous experiences and and personal experiences of weightlifting, what we can take from the weightlifting world and the principles there and sensibly integrate within a team sport environment because it won't always fit, but when it does, what can we take? So a really interesting episode, comparing and contrasting these two worlds into some really actionable points. So really looking forward to getting this out there and would love your feedback. So over to Aaron. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Rock Daisy. Rock Daisy's athlete management system provides a powerful competitive advantage to elite sports leagues around the world. If you're looking for a solution that enables you to centralize, analyze, and visualize your data, check out rockdaisy.com and sign up for a free trial. Also sponsoring this podcast is Vald. So I'm really proud to have Vald as a sponsor again. And after a recent visit to Vald HQ in Brisbane for that annual Vildcon event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office of less than 20 employees back then, it's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries, including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organizations. So an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. This is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about Vald. But if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at valdperformance.com. So without further ado, over to the episode with Aaron. Aaron Kunanen, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I must say that, you know, I've been following your work for quite a long time, so it's an honor to to actually be on the podcast. You've had a lot of my mentors on, uh, so it's uh, great to be able to contribute a little bit to, to your show as well. No, thank you very much. I'm sure you've done a number of these, and I wasn't going to ask you this, but because you mentioned it, I will do. Who would you consider mentors? Uh, I'd say Duncan French, definitely. Um, Jeff Head as well. John Waggle, uh, three that definitely come to mind um, that have been you know, really kind of monumental influences on me as a professional, as a person. Um, so, yeah. And not just because you've said those three, and I'm glad you said those three, but three incredible people as well. Yeah. Incredible no, what they do, but incredible yeah. people. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice. Okay. That was our first question before the, even, before the intro. Nice, nice easy warm-up. Yeah. <laughs> get, you, get you eased in. 
So anyone that doesn't know who you are, Aaron, would you mind just giving us a bit of a, a short bio on what you're currently doing, what you've done before, and maybe how you met these three mentors on the yeah. yeah, so it's been kind of a, a winding journey, uh, as a lot of us have, but currently I am the Director of Applied Sports Science for the Cincinnati Reds, wrapping up my second year with the organization going into our third year next year. Um, prior to that, I was at the UFC Performance Institute as the Performance Support Manager in 2021. Uh, in 2020, I was with the San Francisco Giants, another baseball um, role. And kind of before getting into baseball, I got my start in sport as a weightlifter, mediocre weightlifting athlete. Um, you know, kind of transition into coaching from that was never really on my radar. I started undergrad as an English education major, um, but through some different events and life experiences, found the sport of weightlifting. Like I said, transition into coaching. I was really fortunate. Um, the weightlifting program that I was at is headed by Dr. Kyle Pierce, who I think still currently is on the IWF. Uh, International Weightlifting Federation. He's on their coaching and research committee, very involved with, um, you know, sports science research uh, within weightlifting, uh, involved with, you know, international programs and weightlifting around the world. Uh, so it was a really cool front row seat during my early days uh, of a developing coach, seeing a systematic program and process and approach to an Olympic sport. Um, that definitely shaped a lot of my early thoughts of, you know, what coaching could be or should be, or how to develop, like I said, just a systematic approach to the training process, the long-term training process. Um, so that guided my early development as a coach, like I said, and then getting like a, you know, secondhand view to a lot of these other well-established, um, training programs across the world and seeing the caliber of coaches at these, uh, you know, other successful programs definitely gave me, you know, sort of a template of how I thought would be the best route to go about my development as a coach first and foremost. Um, and then as I continued down that journey, pursuing higher education, um, I got my master's degree in kinesiology, but then noticed the pattern across the world internationally. A lot of these top level coaches, you know, program directors had PhDs in some, you know, human performance related field. Uh, so I thought that that's probably a signal um, that, you know, I should probably go down the same route as kind of a template for success for these individuals. Um, so I definitely stoked my interest in pursuing even more education. Um during the same time, again, just being exposed to these you know, Olympic programs opened my eyes to beyond just the world of coaching in and of itself of, you know, all of these different other areas, you know, nutrition, sports psych, uh, sport medicine, you know, all of those things that are part of a comprehensive and holistic approach to, you know, training and development um, and being exposed to kind of that bigger picture coordination of all of these different pieces got me a little bit more interested on that um, on that more general side of things, not just focused solely on coaching, but from a performance management side of things. Uh, so that kind of shifted my lens or perspective of what I wanted to do and develop. So I ended up going to East Tennessee State University for my PhD in sport physiology and performance. I uh, got to study under Dr. Mike Stone, Coach Meg Stone, uh, you know, all the great faculty members and peers that were there, John Waggle being one of them. Uh, we were in the same cohort uh, during our PhD. So that was a really 
really great experience to continue to develop as a coach, but then also to add that sports science side of things, of diving into being a sports scientist alongside being a, a coach as well. Uh, that really opened my eyes to a lot of different um, different challenges and issues and approaches that I, I draw on in my current role um, and finished that up in 2019, which led into the Giants role, um, my first you know kind of professional role after the PhD. So really long kind of you know journey that was really fortunate due to some just luck, good timing, right opportunity, right place sort of things. Um, during that, you know, leading up to my PhD, I was very much a weight, weightlifting kind of background and experience, like I said, as an athlete and coach. And as I was getting ready to transition from the PhD to the, you know, job market, recognized the need to kind of expand my experience and my resume. Uh, so during that time, also had the opportunity during the PhD to do an internship at the UFC Performance Institute in Strength and Conditioning. Uh, so that was my first stint at the UFC. Got to work under Bo Sandoval when he was still there, Duncan French. Um, and then we got to reunite again in 21. So um, been, like I said, just very fortunate with the opportunities I've been able to have Um try to capitalize on just the timing of, of different things and, and approach things to the best of my ability. And here we are in uh, an excited time just in baseball, but then also for our organization, a lot of really exciting things that kind of drew me over uh, back into the baseball world. Um, you saw me furiously scribbling down lots of things there straight away. I've got loads of questions for you. And it, it links into one of your mentors actually, because John, I think it was definitely supporting Austin Driggers in a, with a, an article on Sportsmith probably a year ago now about their influence on their thinking around uh, how it integrates within team sports and how it integrates within baseball, which led me to think what influences it had on you in terms of uh, do you very much have a weightlifting, I hate the word bias because that almost instantly makes you think negative but do you do you have that it kind of inbuilt in you and it's 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 been a thread through your career in terms of programming um, and is it followed say, you in the, the different sports yeah i mean i i think i'm one that i definitely recognize there's undoubtedly benefits to weightlifting you know including weightlifting movements in a program that's not the only way to achieve you know similar types of adaptations um i think the article that you mentioned by Austin and John pointed out a lot of just the realities of sport that a lot of us face um, and especially the logistics of baseball and travel and facilities and equipment availability and those sorts of things that require you to be flexible and adaptable in your methodology. Um, you know, there's the famous quote by Harrington Emerson, I think that's, uh, Principles are many, or methods are few. Principles or methods are many. Principles are few. The person that understands principles can successfully select his own methods. Um, and so, understanding, you know, taking a, an adaptation approach, adaptation-based approach to training, understanding what the principles of training are, I think allows you to have that creativity to, you know, accommodate whatever constraints, challenges, resources, limitations um, that you have as part of your specific circumstance. Um, so while I love the weightlifting movements, um, like 
and they would probably, you know, would be the first place that my mind would go, but it's obviously not the last place my mind would go. Uh, there are so many other things to consider, um, aside from just what in an ideal world, what types of adaptations you might achieve, um, because as we all know, we don't live in the ideal. So you have to be able to be flexible. You have to be able to understand, um, even from an athlete preference standpoint and what influence that might have on your decision-making as a practitioner, right? There's the common, um, you know, thought that if an athlete doesn't believe in the program, then you're going to get less results running the perfect program than if you ran something that they believed in. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to that and, you know, that's certainly part of the equation as well. Um, so, like I said, by experience, I'm mostly a weightlifting person, uh, but I think by perspective and trade, I've tried to um, take as diverse a, an approach as possible and appreciate what all the different possible methods there are. And again, going back to those root principles and using those to guide any sort of you know selection or, or decision making. This definitely wasn't on the list of things we we're going to discuss, but <laughs> I think it's super, super interesting for people. And I'd like to go down this track, if that's all right, and, and continue a little bit. So it, you mind first we'll go, okay, adaptation. The first option may be just in your head, and it may live there. It may be binned because of various different things. Um, it may be the weightlifting comes first. Can you take us through maybe an example that you've come across that you wanted to get X, potentially, if we live in an ideal world, which we don't, but if we did, I would do this and it's a weightlifting movement where lifting derivative. However, because of ABC and X, Y, and Z, we've had to go this route. And Austin and John do outline that in the article, but I'd love to get your thoughts and maybe an example from you, if that's all right. Sure. Um, I mean, if the audience hasn't read that article, I definitely recommend them doing so because it, it really does go into detail. Um, within the world of professional baseball, a lot of those things that, you know, steer would steer somebody towards specific decisions or reasons why they would not be able to use the weightlifting movements effectively. Um, I think um, one example, you know, which we might talk about a little bit more, um, you know, during my time at the UFC of, you know, just seeing those athletes prepare and train and looking at, some situations where you have a long time before an athlete's fight and they have, you know, a couple months or several months before their next fight, you're able to go through like an actual general prep phase um, where you might include some weightlifting movements. Um, and, you know, maybe you're starting out with someone who has zero resistance training experience. Uh, you know, you're going through basic barbell exercises, you're introducing some simple derivatives or um, or variations from the weightlifting side of things. And, you know, the world of MMA and their training is just, it's so insane. Like it, there are so many different training elements that these people are managing on a day-to-day -day basis from you have strike, striking, you have grappling, wrestling, jujitsu, then like actual MMA training. Uh, then you throw in the physical preparation on top of it, then the recovery and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, so you have these people that, they're training five, six, sometimes seven days a week, and things may be going great. You're introducing, like I said, these you know basic weightlifting variations, and suddenly they tweak their shoulder during jujitsu or they tweak their knee. So, you know that may put certain exercises or variations off the table, at least in the short term, or maybe for the rest of the training block. Um, and so, 
you know, during that general prep phase, you're trying to build general physical capacities. And, you know, if you've taken that specific exercise or group of exercises off the table, how are you going to adjust? You know, maybe you switch over to more like loaded plyometrics or, um, you know, something like that. And so I think even a, a, a world where resistance training hasn't always been very embedded within, you know, martial arts and MMA. Uh, the UFC has done a great job of, I think, kind of advancing the the approaches to to development and training within the MMA world and an MMA space, um, you know, where you're getting up people who, for the most part, have a really low training age. Um, you really have to think about the other demands that are being placed upon them. And, you know, again, you may have a, you, a lot of times run into a scenario where you do have the time um, in terms of how long, from a learning standpoint, from a physical development standpoint to make good use of the weightlifting movements um, in that, in that space. But again, because of that, all the other things that they're doing, you know, maybe that day or that week, those exercises are just off the table because of, you know, not necessarily injuries, but just, uh, slight tweaks or soreness um, or fatigue that may just make that type of training ineffective. And so you have to be able to, to understand, all right, well, what's the next best thing or what else can I do in place of that? Um, there's another quote by the economist Thomas Sowell, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. Um, and so I you know, think keeping that in mind that there's no perfect fit, it's, you know, you do something to gain in these things, but you also may lose out on some other areas. And it's being able to, as a practitioner, um, be willing to stand behind your decisions and you have a good rationale and thought process in place for why you make those decisions to be able to defend them if you need to. Um, so yeah, I think like recognizing that uh, and being able to be aware of a variety of different modalities so that if you do have to make an adjustment, you have you know different options that you're able to call upon that are more or less appropriate depending on the circumstance. That quote sounds like it's just summed up life itself, not just training. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very yeah, deep. Definitely. Like Is it like not on the, just the training side, but from a like athlete monitoring standpoint from, you know, both what we're trying to set up here and just in general. Um, yeah. And, Life in general, like you said, I think definitely an applicable quote. So while we're on the UFC stuff, it, it kind of brings me to the next topic, which is on the list. So uh, so we're hopefully I'm prepared for, for, for what's to come. <laughs> I think on the conditioning side, and it's becoming aware, I'm becoming aware of it, that a couple of years ago, well, probably last five, six, seven years, coaches are looking to, the, to track coaches for education, for inspiration, for knowledge, for experience in building fast people and we're taking that we're, we're using it we're integrating it in team sports and i think that's happening now what them them track coach is still having influence on what happens and i think that's definitely happening more in the conditioning world people are looking to different sports who are maybe a little bit further ahead in 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 the conditioning in the conditioning realm i suppose and, and try to eke every little last bit of how it can be translated into into baseball or basketball or football or soccer, whatever it is. So I'd just like to get your take on UFC and what you learned there from a conditioning perspective and how that's kind of influenced and helped you transition out and into other sports like baseball. Sure. 
Yeah, I think for me, one of the most exciting things as a practitioner and as a fan of mixed martial arts, um, I think it's the ultimate N equals one sport in the world, right? You have so many different scenarios of, you know, working with a fighter who they just signed their first contract with the UFC, they're getting ready for their first fight all the way through to, you know, champions in a weight class that are getting ready for a title defense and everything in between, you know, you know, fighters that may be changing weight classes, you know, so literally no two instances are the same uh, with any of the fighters. And so that can create a lot of challenges, but I think that's for me, like one of the exciting things about trying to solve those challenges and how, how you, you know, come up with trade-offs, <laughs> appropriate trade-offs uh, for those scenarios. Um, but it does create a lot of, um, a lot of difficulties in dealing with you know these different fractured timelines or these unpredictable timelines. Um, you know, again, a scenario where you may be working with a fighter who's they don't have a fight scheduled and they get a call for a short notice fight in two weeks. But what do you do from a conditioning standpoint with a fighter who only has two weeks to prepare? Versus what do you do with a fighter who you know they're on a you know an eight week training plan, getting ready for a fight and their opponent gets injured so then the fight gets pushed back another you know several weeks so you just completely disrupted the the timelines there so from a a periodization standpoint there's certainly a lot of challenges in terms of how you go about approaching that and addressing that but i think that you know utilizing the principles of periodization and periodized programming still really can help you address all of those different scenarios from a conditioning standpoint. Uh, You know, I talked before earlier about all of the different training elements that are involved in an MMA athletes, um, you know, day to day, right. They have all of the different technical uh, sessions that they might be, um, you know, engaged in at whatever point during their camp, they have, again, the the physical preparation from an SNC standpoint. So you're really trying to make sure that, you're aware of and managing all of the different units of training and you're, you should be, I think, trying to maximize training economy. Um, You know, where are those opportunities that you can work on conditioning or specific elements of the conditioning within some sort of sport specific, you know, martial arts practice versus what should you try to address within an S and C specific session. Um, And I think kind of stepping back, looking at these timelines, right? In an ideal world, if you have the ability to run a full quote unquote training cycle, um, you know, the principles of periodization, simple to complex, um, general to specific, high volume to low volume, less intense to more intense. um, I think from a conditioning standpoint, one of the clearest or most useful spectrums to think along is like global adaptation to local muscular endurance. Um, and kind of how that transitions or fits across, you know, this ideal timeline. And so, like I said earlier, you may start to work with a fighter at any point along that spectrum, and they may not necessarily have gone through a GPP phase, but you pick them up uh, when they would be in a specific prep or in the case of a fighter who's taking a short notice fight in two weeks. Um, you know, again, that's not enough time from a physiological standpoint to chase cardiac adaptation or, you know, any sort of, you know, big changes in capacity that could be 
enough time to work on some high intensity endurance, you know, through high intensity intervals. But with that comes some additional fatigue during a time where they should, you know, especially if they weren't specifically preparing for this fight, probably should be focusing on sharpening their skills or making sure that they're, you know, up to the task from a technical standpoint. So we know the relationship between increased fatigue and technical execution. So is that something, you know, what's the trade-off there that you're willing to go after? Um, And, you know, I think, is that periodized training? You know, if periodized training is like aligning your goals and objectives to the available timeline, then I think so. Um, But some might argue otherwise. I mean, call it what you will. But the reality of the situation is like you have to understand what what adaptations are possible within a given timeline. What's your proposed ideal for you know sequencing those adaptations and then being able to you know again just coordinate with the technical side of things and the sports specific training um i think that's where you can make the the biggest gains or i guess have the biggest impact in terms of not adding too much additional fatigue outside of what they're already going to be doing but making sure that you're having a training effect to the specific you know adaptations or or conditioning that they might need for someone that hasn't worked in mma and hasn't worked in baseball the there seems to be quite a a link between the two in terms of you know tight schedules um looking at that that higher end or however you want to look at it further right end so there's there's a there's a conditioning effect but there's not too much fatigue because these guys have got then got a fight tomorrow but they've got a game tomorrow and then get the next day and then get the next day. Would that be right for someone, a complete novice in both sports? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's definitely a realization that I've had coming in. Um, it's not something that I expected. Even my weightlifting experience, like I see so many similarities from my experience in weightlifting through to the MMA world, through to the baseball world. I think there's, there's a lot of similarities there. Um, the similarities between weightlifting and those other two are different than the similarities between MMA and baseball. But I think there are a lot of similarities. Uh, the ones that you mentioned, especially um, those tight schedules, a lot of training elements, uh, the high skilled nature or focus on the technical execution and the importance of that. Um, definitely a lot there. You know, again, referencing that article by Austin and John, a lot of the, the things that impact the schedules and timelines from a training standpoint, um, yeah, I think there, there are a lot of similarities there. So from a conditioning point of view in baseball, just moving towards you, you pre- the present day, what does conditioning look like for you, for your guys? Obviously there's, there's probably multiple buckets of athlete, depending like positional, uh, schedule wise, like who's involved, who's not involved, but what does it look like for you kind of globally? Yeah. And then feel free to dive into any of those kind of bucketed, bucketed athletes. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, going back to, like, what are the demands of the sport? Well, we can focus on pitching specifically. Um, You know, by and large, it's not an aerobic task in the sense that it's not, like, long, continuous activity. But I would say that it's aerobic or at least a high cardiac demand from the standpoint of when a pitcher is on the mound – their heart rate is 85% plus of heart rate max the entire time they're on the mound. Even though, you know, with the introduction of the pitch clock this last season, they're throwing 
a pitch every 15 to 20 seconds, depending on if there's a, a person on base or not. Um, and so that ability to repeat those high intensity efforts of throwing a pitch at max effort or near max effort uh, with an elevated heart rate for that prolonged period of time, I think uh, to me points toward the importance of having a strong cardiovascular system um, from a, a very base basic standpoint. Um, and then throw on top of that, like from a bioenergetic standpoint, you know, rephosphorylation of creatine is, you know, aside from what happens in the, you know, cellular fluid primarily takes place through mitochondrial respiration, which requires aerobic um, capacity. So not to dive into the, you know, the physiology too much, but I, I do think that there is a strong case for having a robust cardiovascular and aerobic system to support the, the efforts of pitching again, po both from the cardiovascular strain that these pitchers experience while they're on the mound. And then also from the recovery in between those high intensity efforts. Um, and so I think it's pretty clear. You can go into any you know physiology textbook to see how to, you know, improve those things. Uh, now, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, like how do you do that within the, environment that you're in uh both with in terms of equipment that's available in terms of time that's available when during the year you have the ability to work with these athletes uh one of the things that's new this year on the minor league side is there's a quote-unquote dead period where you're not allowed to have contact or require those athletes to do specific work on behalf of the team uh, which runs from i think november 17th to january 1st of you know next year and so that entire you know block of time you can't you know prescribe specific work you can like have a packet much like in the ncaa uh in the u.s in collegiate sports where you know during certain periods of the year you can't have direct contact with the athlete they're kind of on their own to to do their work um and so that creates a lot of logistical problems and challenges to you know physical development and so like that from a, a and setting the base and foundation standpoint, I think that's kind of my general philosophy. And then obviously how that fits into the specific conditioning from a pitching standpoint of you know the arm, the structures of the arm and the shoulder being conditioned and ready to throw um, at high intensity, and what the throwing program looks like from the off season to preparing for that spring training camp to getting ready for the season you know again if we're looking at from a macro periodization standpoint of your off-season training your preseason training your in-season training you know the sport specific activity from a throwing standpoint is going to be different and just like any other you know team sport or or anything like that your conditioning activities off the field are should complement what the objectives of of the sport specific training are right and so you may go from more like aerobic or general capacities in the off season from a conditioning standpoint to more introduction of, you know, different circuits, whether that's, you know, plyo metric circuits or med ball circuits or whatever, just a little bit more higher intensity, repeated effort type of circuits um, to more like, you know, pure, like high power, um, high power output type activities as we get really close to the spring training, um, you know, period. 
And so, you know, again, those timelines may shift or you know, emphasis may be more or less depending on the specific case. Uh, but I think that's kind of speaking generalities, like hopefully a substantive answer, uh, give, give some meat and potatoes there. Uh, so we're just going to take a very quick break in this chat with Aaron. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we take a little left turn, continue with the conditioning talk, but have a little chat around sports science. What is sports science? How can we manage and make the most of the data that we're collecting, but not always add, sometimes take away and remove some of the, the noise that in terms of the data, the numbers that we're collecting. So really interesting and thought-provoking part two coming up. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And now back to the episode with Aaron. Yeah. So from that, building that aerobic capacity, maybe more on a, on a general level <clears throat> and talking about maybe the, the pre-season or off-season. And I know it get, people can pick up a physiology, but I'd love to know how you guys how you guys would do that or your thinking of how to how to build that appropriately with all the things that you've mentioned taken into account because there's so many variables that are going on but how do you how do you go about that how do you in terms of methods how do you tackle it yeah i mean i think one of the the easiest adaptations to to go after in the off season would be you know increasing left ventricular volume and you do that through low intensity steady state for really extended periods of time like it's boring but it is super effective and um again like from a compliance standpoint there's probably a more nuanced conversation to to land on like what the exact prescription is going to be um you know but if you're looking at you know heart rates at you know probably pretty close to you know around like the zone two training is like all the rage these days right like it's probably a high focus and emphasis on you know quote unquote zone two type training for really extended periods of time like 30 minutes to an hour plus of you know uninterrupted you know zone two type training around that heart rate you know intensity um you know again for me that helps to get the um target the the increase in the left ventricular volume to help increase the amount of blood that's getting pumped out with each beat to the periphery. And then I think as you transition closer to like the preseason camp uh, or spring training, then you might be able to go after, you know, your longer, um, like longer intervals of, you know, four to five to six minutes at, you know, 80 to 90% heart rate max, you know, maybe a little bit higher depending on the fitness level. Um, but then, you know, that's where you're getting into being able to stress the cardiovascular system and the heart specifically to sustain, you know, that high heart rate uh, for extended periods of time. And so for me, that would that's how I would kind of manage that transition between 
you're trying to build the general capacity of, of the heart to fill and deliver blood to the periphery. And then you're making it a little bit more specific with the longer intervals to, uh, at those higher intensities to be able to allow the heart to, to sustain or um, to manage you know, that workload or that output um, for those extended periods of time. And then again, you know, that would probably shift into, you know, shorter intervals, not necessarily, you know, running or biking or anything, but more of the like whole total body, whether that's med ball or some sort of plyometric, you know, interval uh, based approach where you're doing like repeated high intensity outputs every, you know, 10, 15 seconds, 20 seconds or so, you know, three to five reps, whatever it might be, you know, multiple sets of that, you know, to kind of build in that that robustness to be able to execute those near maximum or maximum efforts um back to back to back so that would kind of be the general sequence of um of the types of activities that i think would be appropriate cool right we're gonna take a left turn and we're gonna go to something that's probably definitely on my mind because we've published a couple of articles in, in this in this particular area that we're going to go into and it's sports science and it's perceptions and I think there's a couple of people who are quite vocal on social media about um, about this area. And we, we published an article recently by Jason Weber, uh, Australian guy, um, uh, strength and conditioning coach by trade, learned to code, and is very much moved into this particular area. And I'll just read a quote by by Mike Boyle. Teams need to hire more slash better coaches and spend less time on the data part. Our field is absolutely moving in the wrong direction. So I'd just love to get your opinion as the director of sports science, a large organization. Your how you read that? Like, does that does that surprise you? Does that frustrate you? How does that kind of sit? Um. Well, one, I, it it doesn't surprise me, and it's only frustrating if people aren't willing to have the more nuanced conversation around the what and the why. Um, I'm never going to argue that we don't need better coaches, or that you know there isn't room for any coach to continually improve. I think that's something that we all should be doing, regardless of our role, um, regardless of our title or organization that we work in, or whatever. Um, I think that that's an important thing. What I think gets lost in the message, and I don't want to speak for Mike and, you know, put words in his mouth, but what I think gets lost with that type of messaging or the way that it comes across to me is that relying on our intuition is enough or it should be enough, um, which in some cases Maybe depending on what the stakes are, depending on the the scope, the scale, the magnitude, and all all that sort of stuff. Um, and I definitely would agree that there are lots of instances where people become too reliant on the data, or they expect too much of the data. Um, you know, I think for me coming in to the organization, um, there was as much like scaling back on different initiatives and reducing data that was coming in from, you know, specific sources as much as it was like trying to add anything new from a data standpoint. 
Um, and I think where organizations, where people go wrong is when any specific piece of data is not tied to a specific objective or outcome or decision-making process. Um, it's just, you know, data collection for the sake of data collecting, um, which I don't think serves anybody well it, in, a, in a world of finite resources, both in terms of money, time, human resources, you know, the number of staff that we have available. Um, you know, our main job descriptions for an SNC coach is to be a coach, right? They, it's not necessarily to interact with the data. Same thing for any sport medicine practitioner, even for a dietitian. Um, like the the people facing the athlete facing component of those roles should predominate. And um, I think again, where where people go wrong is diving headfirst into the data or into a specific technology without fully defining what the process is for integrating that data into you know their decision making processes. Um, you know, David Bishop has a really good review that, uh, kind of outlines a framework for applied sports science and, you know, a problem solving approach to applied sports science and being problem driven, uh, and using that to kind of inform your processes. Pat Ward has, has talked several times about, uh, the acronym is PPDAC, which stands for problem plan data analysis and conclusion, but again, a very problem first, like identify the problem first approach. Um, and I think that's an element of, you know, sports science, you know, the scientific method, you know, some flavors are, are more problem oriented, uh, you know, of trying to identify there's a problem that we're trying to solve. And then how do we get there? What information do we have available? Like, what is our current level of understanding? What is the gap in our knowledge that we need to fill in order to be able to make a better decision? How do we get that information or fill that knowledge gap? Once we get that, what do we understand about that new knowledge within the context of all the other knowledge that we have available to us? And what are the decisions that we're going to make off the back end of that? Um, and so I think, again, certainly there's an element where especially in this day and age because of how much technology is available which is both i think a, a blessing and a curse in some ways but it is so ubiquitous it's not going to go away or you know decrease in how much is available it's only going to increase so i think there's some level of responsibility on practitioners to maintain or you know attain a certain level of scientific literacy and data literacy so that they can capitalize that information uh, or capitalize on that information. Um, yeah. So I guess that that's my initial, initial volley of response to, like <laughs> to your question. Like it. And, and it, it comes back to me, it comes back to sports science being so heavily linked to tech when there's actually, like you mentioned numerous names there, it's not just the technology. Like it's the process of how you go about your work that is the scientific principle. It just happens that there's a million and one bits of technology that's been thrown at us in this, you know, 2023, and those scientific principles are used to actually understand this. But I think that maybe Mike is coming at it from a these just tech guys. When you're a coach, you've you've coached, and now you're director of sports science, so you've got that. You've made that really 
good link between those kind of two two stories. But I think often there's a there's still that perception of sports science just means sticking GPS units on and downloading them when it's just it's so much more than that. Absolutely. I think I mean there's a lot of reasons for why that version of sports science kind of, you know, proliferates um, unchecked. A lot of it has to do with, you know, a lot of times just the decision makers don't have a health and performance background or they don't have a sports science background. So they don't know what to, to check or, um, you know, they're not necessarily subject matter experts in a specific field or space or around, you know, a specific technology. So, they just see things as a tool and hope that if they have the tool, then something good will happen. Um, and so I think a lot of times like you have well-intentioned but slightly misguided individuals or organizations um, that, again, they create a scenario where you have this glut of technology and data that is it's just there. Um, and... Yeah, I think the more that you can have people involved in the conversation to you know, guide the ship, so to speak, um, and, and try to make sure that there is alignment between the specific initiatives that, that you're after or technology that you're bringing on board, um, I think that's really important. And I know from my experience, like one of my big motivating factors, aside from like the educational component of you know diving in during the phd uh, but as a coach like i dived into you know the weightlifting biomechanics research and the the training theory and, and all that sort of stuff and i you know read all of the papers but i got to a point where reading the papers no longer gave me the answers that i need like there were still questions that i couldn't answer and certainly isn't the case in every sport or environment but for me in order to get those answers i needed to upskill and get you know gain the ability to investigate those answers through the use of you know technology for technique evaluation or you know whatever it might be um and so i think it, it, that's definitely part of it um i think the ecosystem that you're in you know being in a professional sport versus uh, a private facility or even within professional sports, right? If you're the only S&C coach and like you're the entire performance department, like there's only so much you can do in terms of bandwidth, right? And hopefully you can focus as much as possible on coaching. Um, you know, for us, like even in baseball, there are a lot of organizations that have a quote unquote sports science or performance science department to support, you know, all of the other areas of, of the org, but there's a lot of different specific structures of the department. Like we have a very different structure than, you know, they do at the Giants or they do at the Yankees or they do at, you know, any other organization. And like that whole ecosystem of within professional sport, within our organization, we have Department of Applied Sports Science. We have a Department of Analytics. We have an IT department. We have a systems and development department that takes care of all of our databases. Like you have all of these different groups that 
contribute a different piece to the like data pipeline and, and solution puzzle. Whereas some organizations, again, you just have a sports science department or you just have an SNC slash sports scientist. Um, like those are two very different scenarios. And I think appreciating that as well is, is really important because what you can accomplish in both, like even though you may have the same aspirations or like vision or goals, how that manifests in terms of like what you're able to invest your resources, your time, your attention, your focus on are going to be vastly different. I was actually doing a round table uh, middle last week with Barry Drust, who works at a university over here in the UK, <clears throat> but was Patrick Ward's uh, prof doc or PhD supervisor. Maybe still is. Don't know where Patrick is with that. I think he's finished, isn't he? Um, but he was talking about this this scientific process of of people looking to the always asking, oh, show me the research on that. Show me the research. Where's the, where's the paper on that? And at some point you've got to go and, and people will get to a certain stage and go, that, that's not going to be answered. I'm going to have to do it myself. Like, I'm going to have to figure this out for myself. And you've got to have those that scientific background to do that in a rigorous enough way to be able to get the level of answer, maybe not a peer-reviewed level, but a level of answer that you're kind of happy with to, to move forward. And I think just saying that, you know, you need to, like you mentioned at the start, that the the coaching eye is enough or, you know, my intuition is enough, my experience is enough. Maybe we're, we're getting beyond that and people need to accept that coaches are sports scientists. Like you have to have that that scientist in you to be able to answer these more complex questions like you mentioned there, especially if you're a lone soldier, especially if you're a lone soldier and you, you know, you're the sports scientist, you're the nutritionist, you're the S&C coach. You have to, you know, figure things out for yourself and you have to have that scientific brain to be able to do that. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think you know, a couple of things in response, you know, the whole concept of evidence-based practice, you know, and like, there's three pillars to that, right? Where you have scientific research or like body of knowledge, you have the clinical and, and practical experience, and then you have like the patient or client values. And within our world, yes, randomized controlled trial, whatever is like the highest or most like it's, it's the strongest, most robust form of evidence, but we don't always have that. And as a practitioner, you have to make a decision regardless of what evidence you have available to you. You have to be able to use the best evidence that you have available. And sometimes that is just some like quick and dirty analysis that you did of, you know, your, your athletes, you know, whatever performance data, sometimes there is existing literature to be able to draw from. Um, and so I think it's getting away from the, the idea of like, just because we don't have the quote unquote best evidence that we don't have any evidence. Again, you as a practitioner, you ultimately have to make a decision and everyone's free to, you know, make their decisions how they want. But if, as long as you can have some sort of, of backing and rationale to your decision, um, again, whatever evidence, using whatever evidence you have available to you, I think that's the important thing. Um, and then to your point about, you know, we can all be sports scientists. And this goes back to like, the working definition of sports science that I like the most is sports science is the application of scientific principles and the scientific method to improve athlete performance, health, development, 
you know, what have you. And to me, there's nothing in that definition that says only a sports scientist can do sports science. Like it is an approach, right? As an SNC coach, I can practice sports science. As a dietitian, I can practice sports science, you know, by incorporating these different methods. Um, and that's one of the things that I enjoyed and what I think was most valuable about the educational model at ETSU and studying under Dr. Stone is you go there and if you're in the grad program, whether you're in the master's program or the PhD program, you get assigned to a sport, whether that's through ETSU athletics or one of the other universities that are in the area. Um, and you are assigned as the SNC coach and or sports scientist for that sport. And regardless of what your assignment is, you're involved in the athlete monitoring program, doing the data collection, creating the report off the back end, using that information as the SNC coach, or being able to interpret that information as a sports scientist to deliver to the sport coach or to the SNC coach. So that very much is ingrained as part of the training and education there of you are there is no separation really, right? Like you are both and you need to learn how to function as both, um, which I, again, I really found a lot of value in that, um, you know, looking at other educational programs that are popping up, but, you know, that's a model that is becoming more common, which I think is a good thing in the U.S. at least, uh, becoming more common. I know it's more common already or more established internationally, um, but but I think we're getting there. And I, I do think that that's, that's an important aspect of like, we can all, even though we might not all be quote unquote sports scientists, we can all practice sports science regardless of what our role is. I think that's a great message. Great message. I've got one more question for you before I let you go. You mentioned reducing data sources, and that was one of the first things you did when you came into post. Not to throw any companies under the bus, but but what what tech was be sidelined because it wasn't been actioned or it was just taking too much time? or for whatever reason it's been moved there are instances of, of yeah i mean there are multiple reasons you know for different tech for different reasons some it was because it, one we just didn't have the bandwidth or i felt our you know our efforts would be better focused elsewhere others were i didn't feel or we didn't feel that um that the science was there that there was you know a good rationale for investing our energy there um, yeah, and I mean, ultimately it comes down to a bandwidth issue. Um, you know, even though we have what is a relatively large staff within the LLB, uh, from a sports science standpoint, again, we have a limited number of things, you know, time, attention, uh, all that sort of stuff that we can devote ourselves to. Um, and so it really is just about aligning our focus toward the things that we're going to have the most impact for our coaches and for our support staff and for our players. You'd have to make, mention brand names, but is there any areas that did get kind of pushed to the side? This is the common thing, Aaron. I, 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 sorry to, I don't want to push it if you're not comfortable, like please say, but it's, it's very much a common thing that I'm speaking to people and it's not about adding anymore. Like adding has been done. People are going to positions and going, let's weed this out. There's just too much going on. Let's get it down from eight things to four things, or three things to two things. So, just I'm just interested, and feel free to veto it if uh, feel free to veto it if need be. Uh, yeah, I probably that's won't cool. go into more detail that's cool. on that. That's, cool. no, that's fine. <laughs> mate. That's absolutely fine. But like I say, it is. I think it's a 
it's an interesting point, and I think it's very common across people that speak to on the podcast. So, no, I appreciate that. Right, mate. I'm, I'm we're coming up to the hour that I've kept you. So, if anyone wants to reach out, if anyone wants to get in touch about anything that we've spoken about or anything else, just keep in touch with you and, and keep up to date with what you've got going on. What's the best place? I'm active on Twitter mostly in terms of social media. Uh, my handle is at Aaron J. Kunanen. Uh, and that's consistent across whether that's Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Uh, like I said, I'm most active on Twitter and then probably LinkedIn. Um, so those would be the best places to reach out. Perfect. Aaron, thank you very much. Really appreciate you coming on and uh, being so honest and open about what you, what you guys do. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks tune in to episode 473 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Aaron for giving up his time and being so open and honest about his work in the UFC, but also his work in baseball with Cincinnati and San Francisco Giants. So big thanks to Vald, to Rock Daisy and Team Builder for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time.